welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's Beth W here and I'm back with Chris for another episode. Hi, Chris. Hi, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, good. And who have we got as our guest today? All right, today we have another returning guest. Uh, Richard Sugg is back and he's here to talk a bit more about the, the history of disgust from his book, Talking Dirty, A History of Disgust from Jesus Christ to Boris Johnson. And with some, some of the issues as well that he's covered in his other book, Callie the Wonder Dog. Um, just before I say hello, I will say that <laughs> my search history is even murkier now as I had to I googled Richard Sugg talking dirty. That wasn't possibly the best thing to do. <laughs> but Richard, welcome to History Hack. Many thanks. No, it's a dirty job, but someone someone's got to do it. And uh, yeah, it's great to great to be back with you on uh, this, which seems to go on forever. This subject, but the politics is particularly particularly foul. Yeah, absolutely. Just before we sort of jump into into it, though. Um, we should remind for some people who must might have somehow missed the previous episode. What, what is the general context for uh, for your book? Yeah, so I, like everybody, I think with any sense, have been reeling since the 2016 Brexit vote, um, and particularly actually about Wales, because I think people didn't expect a country that tends to buck the English trends and is generally a a very kind of horizontal society, a very socialist country to go the way that England did. Um, so I remember being with a Welsh friend, very shocked on the day of the vote. We were out having lunch. And I always remember we were shouting our heads off quite rightly about this utter madness, which took so many of us by surprise, of course. And there were a couple of uh, women at the table next to us who seemed very nervy and guilty looking and weren't saying a word. And I'll never know for sure, but... This, I think, was an emblem of what was going on so often that people voted like this for a protest, uh, didn't expect it to actually happen, regretted it fairly soon after it happened, if not immediately. And it, it fits very much with the history of disgust, which at this point I've been writing for a few months uh, already, insofar as it's about this big human emotion, which Darwin classified as one of the six big emotions, but which is special because it's unspeakable. It's unspoken. Its most powerful moments are exclamations, grimaces, shudderings, uh, turning away, pushing something away. And so that kind of unspeakable character uh, has been with us since then, I think. Uh, people are shamed, embarrassed, uh, other people disgusted, uh, people being conned by the, the pops of the Tory party. And yeah, I'll talk later about what kind of cheered me up during this period about some some really diverse British heroes uh, and war heroes. But as time went on, I was writing disgust and it got very heavy to have to go into all the uh, endless sewage of the Tory party. And so I wanted to do something different as well. And I wrote a novel from the viewpoint of a dog. It's based on a real dog, uh, which actually was on stage in 1803 and four and thereafter in London. Uh, but it's set in the 1930s, which brings us to what we're going to talk about in a moment. 
And yeah, it, it's the whole kind of madness of aristocratic fascists, um, but seen from a dog's point of view and uh, seen with a kind of madness and joyousness, I suppose, particularly at the end. And taking the whole question of British identity, which has been so ferocious, noisy and toxic in the last seven years, particularly, uh, and exploding it, turning it on its head, because it's a novel, I won't give away too much, but taking all these British icons, the Cottingley Fairies, the Loch Ness Monster, Stonehenge, Sherlock Holmes, Cricket, uh, and trying to actually turn them into something that's a really expansive, big, uh, rich, colourful, diverse British identity uh, with, you know, so many minorities having been part of Britain for about 100 years now, at least. So, yeah, if you're not into nonfiction, there's a very fun, racy, pacey novel uh, version of this as well, which uh, has been enjoyed by one of my honorary nieces at age 12. So you're never too young for something uh, about politics. Exactly. And thank you very much, Richard, for that refresher for any of our listeners who um, haven't been able to catch your previous episodes of us yet. Um, yes, so the 1930s is what we're going to be talking about in this episode today. So for the first question, um, I mean, that's one of the, the decades that's been coming up in recent years um, in people talking about politics online and, you know, comparing certain facets of today, certain politics, certain figures to the 1930s. Uh, did you want to give us a, a, a bit of a kind of comparison and context as to why you think these parallels may be being made? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I think it had been festering in Britain since the 1890s with refugees of pogroms in Europe uh, coming into Britain and you know growing communities of Italians, of Jews in London. Um, but it, Obviously, the 1930s gave that awful uh, trigger from the Depression. I was reading Michael Caine's autobiography, which is terrific fun. He's talking about growing up in a very poor family in the 1930s. He's born in 1933 and three million people unemployed. I mean, you know, that figure actually took me a bit by surprise. I'm used to that from Thatcher's period. But yeah, uh, three million people and what could have been a great melting pot in many ways, of course, was people who felt themselves to be very British from the 1890s had been particularly demonised so that the kind of foundations for this were already there by, wait for it, that great patriotic sheet, the Daily Mail. And you can come at this from so many angles. I was writing a piece on uh, Wells, H.G. Wells's classic, The War of the Worlds, which we think of as kind of visionary science fiction, steampunk, uh, you name it. It's an amazing work in so many ways. But Wells, in his autobiography, uh, admits to being, he pretty much says, I'm afraid, a bit of a, a, a blonde, blue-eyed Nazi, completely indoctrinated by the kind of ideology of the Victorian Empire. Uh, he started to see the error of his ways uh, in the 1890s and afterwards. And he happened to know from one of his teaching jobs, the Harmsworth brothers, who would found the Daily Mail. This was... You know, fiercely right wing, fiercely patriotic, in inverted commas, about the Boer War, for example, from the time it was founded in 1896. And Wells utterly loathed it, utterly despised it. And like everybody else, was taken badly by surprise when this paper shot to be the biggest selling paper in the world in, I think, about two years. Um, so this kind of poisoned chalice 
bounced back and forth between um, the Daily Express and the Daily Mail, as has happened, of course, in the, the time of Thatcher and onwards. So that by the 30s, the, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express was the biggest selling paper. But they're both throwing around the same kind of rhetoric. And a, a way to see this, if you want to read some fiction, is just to read The War of the Worlds. It's a brilliant piece of work because it takes all the rhetoric about swarms and floods and people pouring over our borders and the inability to control who are the foreign, strange-looking, dirty, disease-ridden people who are coming off these ships in the London docks. Uh, and the Daily Mail was actually giving you figures of how many aliens, this was the word it used at the time, had arrived in Britain year by year, month by month, sorry, in the 90s and onwards. And Wells takes all this in 1898 and he makes the citizens of Britain predominantly white, middle class, a lot of them, the refugees. So it's full of these swarms of dirty, diseased, uh, terrified, um, injured, confused people losing their order, losing their status uh, at the mercy of the Martians. So, yeah, you can see the foundations for this. Uh, and it's getting going in the 20s as well with some very nasty uh, privileged and aristocratic fascists, but it really kind of hits the flashpoint, of course, in the 30s with the Olympia meeting, uh, Mosley, Battle of Cable Street, and uh, as we'll see, it gets going as well in the actual war period when we get to the uh, awful character of Edward VIII. Yeah, because British Union of Fascists is something that's it's not really covered in, in sort of school and sort of even in British culture. We don't really talk about it. There was that, was it Jonathan Cake played Mosley in a biopic? Oh God, a long time ago, back in the 90s, I think it was. But we all know about the rise of Hitler and the rise of Mussolini. But could you tell us a bit more about the rise of the BUF? Yeah, this is a peculiar kind of um, mix of... And I suppose it's what we've got with Brexit now, really, you know, the the most disenfranchised uh, working class people in Britain making this curious alliance with old Etonians. Uh, so it's a curious mix of you know, working class uh, street thugs um, who were talking about pogroms in the East End and worshipping Mosley and characters like uh, Mosley, uh, Arnold Lease, uh, who was an extremely nasty piece of work. Uh, I mean, Lease involved with the International Fascist League, considered the BUF to be soft uh, and you know, inadequate, basically, for the kind of anti-Semitism he had in mind. He, he was talking about the blood libel, you know, this absolutely insane but remarkably durable belief that the Jews ritually murdered Christian children, drank their blood, baked their blood into Passover bread, crucified Christian children, this crazy lunatic idea from the medieval period with its own versions of course now in the QAnon uh, adrenochrome lunacy as well and so Lee was actually jailed for repeating uh, blood libel uh, myths and also the um, he was he was right there in 1936 talking about murdering the Jews in gas chambers uh, and was jailed jailed for this before the kind of internment act with the war he was the cousin and the nephew of a baronet uh, and then funnily enough i happened to be watching re-watching the remains of the day which probably you know if most listeners british or american uh, know a kind of take on this it, it's that film or that novel i haven't actually read the novel but the the film has this kind of curiously confused james fox 
uh, Lord Darlington character, and is clearly a kind of an amalgam of all these uh, aristocrats who were hosting Nazis for shooting parties, were uh, toasting Hitler uh, in their stately homes in the 30s, um, raising the swastika among the rhododendrons, as, as Martin Pugh puts it. Uh, and then you've got the, the BUF coming out of um, the strange tortured brain of Oswald Mosley. Uh, Oswald Mosley actually became a baronet during his long uh, career. He was born in 1896, and he has a peculiarly kind of mercurial opportunist movement from being an independent MP, uh, a conservative MP, a Labour MP, he's considered seriously as a prime minister. Of course, this was a time when, you know, you're more likely to be uh, a prime minister if you're an aristocrat, if you're an old Etonian, and so forth. And interesting little detail, um, he stood against uh, Neville Chamberlain in 1924 and came within 100 votes of beating him. So there's a little virtual history that didn't quite happen, uh, but but very nearly did. And yeah, um, he, um, he was supported, as we'll see, to a horrible extent by the, uh, the right-wing media, had a very big role in pushing him into prominence and pushing the membership of the BUF up to perhaps 50,000 uh, around the mid-1930s. And on um, Oswald Mosley, could you give us, uh, before we go into the, the wider fascist movement that he was leader of, are there any more details that you wanted to share, um, you know, about how, about his background? Obviously, you've given us some little um, points there. But yeah, is there any more context you wanted to, to give us about Mosley and how he became involved, you know, in this very right-wing politics and how he actually you know, came to be leader of a fascist movement. Well, as I say, he he was fiercely ambitious uh, as an MP and very peculiarly mercurial. He was a uh, very young member of parliament, uh, very unlike our new young Labour member of parliament we just had last week. Uh, he represented Harrow uh, from 1918. So he's in his early 20s then. Um, and he kind of slides all over the place. He's a conservative. He's an independent. He's a member of the Labour Party. Um, and yeah, he um, he gets going again in the 30s, really, with the British Union of Fascists um, when this kicks off in 1932. And he has a very, very dangerous career uh, until being imprisoned in May 1940 under the Internment Acts uh, and the BUF finally banned. But there is a very, very nasty, and as um, I think Chris has indicated, you know, unknown, unstated, rather whitewashed um, history where MPs are flirting uh, with this character and flirting with the black shirts. Tory MPs of Thomas More, very nasty piece of work, uh, writing pieces in support of the, the black shirts for the Daily Mail, for example, which was a, a really key player in pushing them as, as high as they went. I'm kind of digging back into the recesses of my memory, but he... He had some dealings with Lord Boothby, didn't he? I don't I can't remember what they were. Yes, probably did. I mean, he lived on and on. You know, he he was uh, died only in 1980. So, yeah, I mean, you get you get, uh, you know, all sorts of different scandals uh, weaving in and out of his life. Um, he yeah, he'd been in the, the First World War. Um, very, very well connected. Uh, Fifth Baronet uh, was his father. And um, yeah, uh, right, right at the top of the tree and just just, you know, one of many. I mean, the most vocal, the most 
uh, magnetic, it's been said, you know, very, very mesmerizing, powerful speaker, as we'll see when we come to this awful mess at the Olympia Hall. Uh, and uh, yeah, he was part of a network, including uh, the Duke of Westminster at the time, Lord Brockett, and people who, as is made clear, you know, in the remains of the day, are really dangerous. They consider themselves to be the natural leaders of the country, and they are trying to run a completely counter politics just down to the start of the Second World War against what the government is doing, which gets only worse once you've got Churchill trying to fight not only the Germans, but Edward VIII as well. Yeah. Yeah, the only, I think Mosley's only redeeming feature was that he wasn't a fan of Hitler. Um, from his media, his wife was um, I forget it was one of the Mitfords. She she loved she loved Hitler, but he was not particularly bowled over from memory. Yeah, I mean he, he was he was married I think uh, in Goebbels' drawing room. Um, Hitler did Hitler was a fan of him by the sound of it. Hitler presented him with a signed photograph as a wedding present, um, and I think it didn't help that there were rumours going around that weren't true. But it was rumoured and widely believed in the East End among the fascists in the 30s, that uh, Hitler had been the best man at, at their wedding. Wow. That's not something you want to boast about. <laughs> no, no. Um, um, but it's kind of it's kind of the rumour he earned, if you like. You know, if it was going to be true of anybody, it would have probably been Mosley. Yeah, yeah. Was there much sort of support within Parliament for the black shirts or any of the sort of notions that the BUF were, uh, were proponing? Proponing, is that a word? Yeah, I mean, this this really comes to a crunch in the Olympia meeting. There were a lot of titled ladies and gentlemen at this notorious uh, meeting with Os uh, with Mosley speaking in uh, July 34. And there were uh, estimated up to 150 MPs. So, yeah, you've got someone like Sir Thomas More openly writing about what the black shirts can do for us and you've got kind of gray sort of area I suppose of Mosley and co uh, along later with with Edward um, kind of either side of his very short period of being king as well as the, the kingship um, actually pushing policy because they they have a kind of knack of simplifying or oversimplifying problems during the depression which does appeal to certain working class voters, unfortunately. And they're, they're really quite prepared to bypass ordinary democratic channels, as we'll see, in terms of what you know, Edward and Simpson would get up to uh, in possibly a Nazi-controlled republic uh, in, in the 1940s. This was, this was a real possibility uh, during the early years of the, of the war. So, yeah, you've got um, Mosley, you've got uh, Sir Thomas More, and you've got up to 150 MPs at one of the most absolutely notorious and most disgraceful episodes uh, in British history in the 20th century, the, the Olympia meeting in summer 1934. We now go on to an event which I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of, the, the famous Battle of Cable Street. Um, and I've, like Chris, have also gone on a bit of a kind of diversion in my mind, where I have a feeling that um, Oswald Mosey was a character in Peaky Blinders a couple of years ago, which I haven't watched to my shame. So I don't know if Cable Street was depicted in that in any way at all. Um, but yeah, just a little diverging divergent thought there. But Cable Street, 
obviously that's a really big event in London, um, East End, in British social history. But for any listeners who may not know the ins and outs, um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the Peaky Blinders um, hint, because I'm fascinated that this hasn't been dramatised, you know, that we owe um, as much knowledge as we've got, I think, in Britain and America about the whole Edward VIII Nazi uh, troop movements to the Germans, et cetera, et cetera, story, which we'll come to. But we owe that, you know, to the crown, <laughs> to, to uh, a fictionalised drama series, which has got, of course, a massive audience. And uh, before that, the, the kind of knowledge of this was, I think, The Remains of the Day, the novel, and the um the film so yeah i think it would be great if if we got something really uh you know big uh big network on this as a as a film for now that'll have to do i suppose but yeah the context of this is that the uh the daily mail has pushed up buf membership um possibly to as much as fifty thousand, and actually ran a headline i mean the many things that I think most Britons do not know, the Daily Mail ran a headline uh, in the 1930s, uh, hooray for the black shirts. It had prizes for the best letter on uh, why I support the black shirts. It had prizes of tickets to go and see the black shirts at their rallies. And this went on until um, the Olympia rally, where Quite, quite simply, just to make clear how dangerous and how violent the BUF was by the time the Cable Street came around, because the government collusion here is one of the biggest scandals of the whole thing. Um, at the Olympia rally, there were hecklers um, in the audience, communists, socialists, etc., and Mosley would simply stop talking for about three to four minutes while these people were beaten to a pulp. They were beaten bloody, they were beaten unconscious. Uh, this went on. You imagine a packed audience watching this. Three to four minutes. The police did absolutely nothing. They were dragged out of the hall when Mosley started speaking again and beaten further in the corridors. So this was what they were dealing with by the time that the rally was proposed in autumn 1936. Uh, and this was the proposition that Mosley would go with uh, his fascists into the Jewish East End, you know, the biggest Jewish uh, community in London and uh, he would march through there and this was one thing which was rightly uh, opposed by um, I think it was five mayors of London and bear in mind the mechanics of this in 1936 the Jewish People's Council organized a petition to ban this march this was signed by a hundred thousand people in just two days including the mayors uh, all of this being done of course by hand old uh, pen and paper fashion. And the response to this was the Home Secretary, John Simon, who would later become Viscount Simon, denied the request and he granted the BUF a police escort of around six to thousand uh, police officers, many of them on horseback. So on what turned out to be a very sunny, bright 4th of October day, the fascists numbered anywhere, we're not really sure now, but between two and 5,000, add in the police here, uh, many of them on horseback. The uh, head of Metropolitan Police, Philip Game, had wireless vans and a spotter plane to report on the crowds below. And on they marched uh, into the Jewish East End. 
and the police started fighting with protesters at Aldgate. And what happens, uh, I think, I say this in the book, there's nothing in British history that makes me so ashamed and so proud to be British all at once, because this was an unbelievable piece of violence, of madness, from not just Mosley, but the, the, the British government sanctioning him. Uh, and the result was that Jews, Irish dockers, trade unionists, communists, Labour Party members, housewives and children um, said they shall not pass. And they did not. But there were a lot of injuries. Um, there were quite a few arrests. Around 175 people uh, were injured, including women and children. And there was a particularly narrow point in the march where um, they were erecting barricades. Um, women were throwing mattresses out of windows. They were throwing chamber pots out at the police. Children were throwing marbles under the hooves of police horses. And it all came to a crunch at Cable Street, especially narrow passageway. Uh, and they got barricades up. And around 300,000 EastEnders, including tram drivers who simply stopped their trams across the road, turn back Mosley and his fascists. It's, it's very hard to think of a greater victory of the English working classes uh, against the aristocracy outside of the Civil War, to be quite honest. So it was an extraordinary day in, in every possible respect. And people were still remembering this uh, in 2016, big anniversary. A character called Willie Myers was 14 years old when he fought against the police and the fascists. Um, and very telling for our times, I think. I mean, this was, you know, the year of the Brexit referendum. And Myers said, I remember the day so vividly, I can see it clearly. After Cable Street, we carried on the fight against fascism and racism. Um, and he goes on to say that Jews are still suffering prejudice now, but in fact, Muslims suffer worse. Uh, and he says, even today, if I had to do it all over again, I would, you know, we haven't learned the lessons of the past. Uh, I cannot fathom out why, he says, we can't see each other as human beings. If we're cut, we all bleed the same. Bizarrely, on a, on a slight family note, my great-grandfather was a police officer on duty on Cable, uh, Cable Street, but was not involved in any of the fighting. He was um, in his mid to, mid to late 30s at that point and was no, had no interest in Mosley at all. Okay. Um, Interesting, interesting, just on a side note from me, though, thanks for that. But somebody I know would be quite interested in talking to him, whether anonymously or not, because, you know, actual eyewitnesses from that time are getting thinner on the ground. Um, but that would be that would be very valuable. I mean, my father and his family lived in the East End of London, and it's possible that uh, my grandfather was involved. He was a docker. You know, he was a docker age 49 and he might have been involved. But because there was so much silence around this when I was studying history, I mean, I studied history with a Jewish history teacher, you know, <laughs> and in 1986, I was studying my A-levels. It was a big anniversary of Cable Street. Never a word, never a whisper about this anywhere. Never heard about it. Yeah, it was only because we were watching the uh, the Mosley biopic with Gemma Redgrave and Jonathan Cake in the 90s. My granddad just said, oh, yeah, my father was on duty that day. I was like, all oh, right. And he just sort of made passing comments and said, yeah, did he? wasn't a fan of either side really just sort of doing his job and just trying to stay out of trouble i'm sure there were lots of people like that but there you are again you know the the, the history is being brought out by the television by the fiction uh it's not being done in terms of official history for a long long time and still not really being done uh, adequately i think it should, you know it should be taught in every 
school history class. Absolutely. Um, but we're going to try and do that with our, with our next question. Who is Charlie Hutchinson and why is he so important? Yeah, thanks. Um, Charlie is someone we can celebrate and somebody I think who is hopefully um, sometime after his death now going to become uh, an icon for um, you know really vital fight against fascism before uh, and during during the war. So uh, Charlie was a very modest man after his his wartime career and his fight against fascism. He was born in Oxfordshire in 1918. Um, his father mysteriously disappeared uh, on a trip abroad when Charlie was very young. He had quite a lot of brothers and sisters. His mother couldn't care for him. He ended up in an orphanage, which I believe um, was in Harpenden, very near to where I grew up. Uh, he suffered quite a lot of bullying along with his sister in the orphanage. Uh, and he would have been 18 in 1936. Now, I have to say that there's uncertainty about whether Charlie was at Cable Street or not, because his biography is so patchwork and scattered and unwritten as yet. But the great thing is uh, that in Oxford, there is a project going to get Charlie studied, to get him researched. His biography is being written now by a guy called Daniel Poole. Uh, so we're just not really certain of all the facts about Charlie's life. If you look him up, there's not enough online, but what you'll see tends to say that he was at Cable Street. It seems very likely. He lived in Fulham at this time. He was driving a, a lorry for the Communist Party. Uh, he was a, a vigorous uh, socialist communist fighter of, of fascism in all its forms. So I hope to find out that he was actually at Cable Street. But what we certainly do know about Charlie is that he was black and he was the only black British volunteer uh, to fight in the international brigades for the Spanish Civil War uh, against Franco. So if he was at Cable Street, he barely caught his breath before he was uh, fresh down to Spain uh, where he was wounded um, but refused to return home. He went on to drive an ambulance after he'd been wounded in battle. Uh, and again, he, he barely had time to draw breath uh, and enjoy some peace at home in Britain before he went on to fight the Nazis. Uh, he was present at Dunkirk. Uh, he traveled over much of the world fighting for uh, six years in World War II. And he was present at the liberation of Belsen. Uh, so in every possible sense, he tried to stop fascism as it was growing. Um, he saw where it was leading and he saw where it ended um, in April 1945, in, you know, the most unforgettable images you can imagine. But he was finally demobilized in 1946. And at this point he'd given 10 years of his youth from age 18 to fighting fascists in Britain and Europe. Now, the um, biography is in progress and, and is contracted to be published but one of the great things about Daniel Paul is he's talking to one of our best sources on Charlie and that is his wonderful wonderful family um, who have been very vocal on this uh, very proud of their father or grandfather rightly and I got a little communication from Dan today talking uh, about the family how uh, Charlie would never let the children have toy guns um, how he opened up his home to the miners you might know that you know, various socialists gave rooms and board to the miners during the miners' strike. Um, Charlie was one of these. An old lecturer of mine, Mike, did the same in St Albans. And um, he was a big campaigner against nuclear disarmament. His wife was also uh, a fierce uh, communist supporter as well. 
So the big wonderful news, which gives us something to celebrate in the midst of so much um, darkness and, and hatred in Britain in the last seven years, is that there is a, a crowdfunding appeal. And this is where it's great to have an audience like this uh, listening. There's a crowdfunding appeal for Charlie to have a statue in Oxford, having been born in Whitney in Oxfordshire. Uh, and if this happens, it will be in the home of the great white right-wing establishment. Let's face facts, folks. You know, you cannot count how many Tory prime ministers were educated at Oxford. Um, this will be the first ever statue of a black person in Oxford, and this will be a day to remember and to celebrate. Well, an, yeah, an extraordinary life Charlie had, and being, you know, not just a witness to to some of these huge, momentous, awful events, but also being so involved himself you know in in fighting against fascism um fighting in the war yeah no so interesting i'm sure our um, listeners will um yeah definitely eagerly await any updates in the future on on the biography and on the statue um yeah that all sounds very interesting and important um, and we're now going to go on to um someone very different edward the eighth who of course we've had alex talking about on a few occasions on the podcast with her royal family research and um, so if you can give us some context i'm sure our listeners will be aware of edward the ape's involvement with with fascist regimes with fascist beliefs and and you know particularly the british context yeah um edward was a a, a very curious character i think really um i won't mention any names people won't need the mentioning but when royalty goes wrong it can go really badly badly wrong we know about this in our own century and I think probably uh, without going back as far as Charles I, <laughs> he was as wrong as royalty could ever go. Um, he was supposed to be fabulously beautiful, very good looking um, and very vain. Um, he was a romantic hero to a lot of the working classes in Britain, unfortunately, um, because of this sense that it was romance against the establishment. Um, he was interestingly, along with Wallace, uh, I think a big candidate for one of the very early celebrities in British history. Um, interesting kind of role, which you know goes back to um, Byron, to Wilde. Uh, Greg Jenner's written a terrific book on this not long ago, and um, certainly he was. He, it's hard to think of a bigger royal celebrity than Edward, or a bigger celebrity couple than himself and, and Wallace Simpson. Uh, who considers herself a great model of elegance and style and fashion. Um, and one of the sort of background points I'll make here, whether this will come through again or not, is that a big thing we've discussed is the condition known as uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I found this was a big, big learning curve. We all think we know what this is. I thought I knew what this was. And I started reading the seminal book on this crazy condition where people will spend 10 hours in a shower in, in, in one go, you know, uh, and realise that Howard Hughes was one of the very early victims of, of OCD. Uh, but what I realised also was that although this was medicalised in the 20th century and increasingly from the, the 1980s when the book was written, The Boy Who Could Not Stop Washing, um, Actually, forms of OCD have existed, I think, all throughout history, but they've tended to have kind of valorizing, grand, status-enhancing masks or frames that obscure what we now consider a medical problem. So an obvious one is religion. You know, if you're obsessed with all the 
number of prayers you state, how many times you fiddle with rosary beads, confession, uh, number of years you're going to spend in poetry, whatever. It's all a nice kind of intricate way to channel your neurosis. But the other huge one, particularly for Britain uh, and for Europe to some extent, has been the aristocracy. You know, if you're absolutely obsessed with who sits where facing the horses, um, the fact that when a valet stands in a particular position, it indicates your rank as they announce you, that people in chapel, according to their status, can have a cushion or can't have a cushion, and whether they tilt it or have it upright also indicates their status. I mean, this is madness. This is tribal lunacy, which is what it would be if anthropologists were studying it in Papua New Guinea, and yet this is valorised right at the top of British society. And there was nobody that I can think of, um, even in royal history, that was more absolutely comically, tragically obsessed with their status um, than Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson. So they were flirting with fascism throughout the 1930s. They went to meet Hitler in 1937. Uh, and come 1940, the German ambassador himself claimed that Edward had leaked Allied war plans. If you can stomach it and you want the full down and dirty story on this, um, absolutely jaw-dropping book has just been published by Andrew Lowney uh, called Traitor King. And this really gives you the full damning story. And as I say, the, the, the details that most people have got lately have been in uh, a version, uh, an episode of The Crown uh, covering the aftermath in, in 1945. But just to give you an idea of the way that Edward, along with these other aristocratic fascists, was very happy and able potentially to shortcut democracy in the 1930s. Um, just after George V had died in January 1936, Lady Lucy Houston, uh, editor of the Saturday Review, was vaunting Edward as a potential dictator of Britain. Uh, and I quote her here, we want to hail you as our man of destiny who will free us from our perplexity. Italy has her Mussolini. He is her man of destiny. So here you have it in 1936, a dictator, uh, a rival to Mussolini. Um, and yeah, government ministers, she said, must be summoned by uh, Edward and give, given an ultimatum. Cowards and poltroons that they are, they will crumble at your feet. Now, this wasn't just her. Um, he was constantly trying to press appeasement policies, pro-Nazi policies, um, and he was arguing with Baldwin in 1936 about an Anglo-German alliance. And I quote Edward here, uh, who is king here, Baldwin or I? I myself wish to talk to Hitler and will do so here or in Germany. So the war comes on and um, Edward and Simpson happen to be in France. Just to give you an example of the kind of nightmare they were and would be for Churchill and everybody around him. Um, they were offered uh, a, a flight back to Britain, obviously, as the, the invasion came on of, of France. And the result was they complained that they couldn't possibly get on a little plane across the channel because they had to go back to <laughs> they had to be put on a destroyer. So God knows how many men's lives were risked while this destroyer zigzagged across the channel um, against the uh, paths of, of Nazi submarines. And this was a nice symbol for how things would go on and on with Churchill trying to fight a war against the Nazis, 
uh, and of course the Blitz as it came on in London and other British cities. And at the same time, constantly trying to get information from the staff of Edward and Simpson, who basically, uh, people like Walter Monckton uh, and Fruity Metcalf were deputed to not only serve Edward and Simpson, but spy on them. So they're extremely dangerous. The, the tragic irony of this was that Edward was dangerous enough, dangerous enough on his own. He would give secrets and fruit movements to the Nazis, quite simply on the basis that um, having been insulted and exiled as an abdicated king, he was happy to rule either in a monarchy under the Nazis when they took over Britain or as a republic. Uh, and he would make an alliance with the Labour Party if he had to, but anything to be what he considered uh, a rightful ruler of Britain, along with Simpson. Uh, and if you could pick one person who would make the situation worse, it seemed to be Wallace Simpson. She was supposed to have been the lover of von Ribbentrop. Um, he was supposed to frequently send her 18 uh, carnations, which is for how many times they'd had sex. Um, so between the two of them and various other pro-Nazi figures, big capitalists, uh, and millionaires, some of them, along with press barons such as Rothermere and Beaverbrook, uh, these people were a really dangerous nightmare for Churchill and for Britain. And Lowney gives convincing evidence that the Nazis broke through in the Ardennes in uh, 1940 into France um, because this was something that Edward knew about. You know, he had roles which Churchill was very nervous about. He had a military role early on. And it's really almost certain that his abdication was forced not because of the divorce and Wallace Simpson and so forth, because he was extremely dangerous as a, a pro-Nazi king. But he continued to be so um, down in France, for example, in summer 1939. He was living a life of sunsplashed idleness in a grand villa. Uh, he got married to, to Simpson down there, quite a grand wedding. And... He uh, was being spied on, as I said, by um, various characters. Walter Monckton reported back to the British government that he had um, Lords Beaverbrook and Rothermere down there. So the Daily Express, London Evening Standard, Glasgow Evening Citizen, Daily Mail, Daily Mirror, keep going, keep going. But, you know, huge press barons with millions of readers uh, with these two um, celebrities being very popular with a lot of working class voters, unfortunately. Um, and the report that Monkson sent back was that um, Beaverbrook in particular was cooking up a plan to have Edward come home, stump the country, uh, enlist popular support, enlist city support. Uh, and with his support, his newspapers, um, he, he could succeed uh, to take back the monarchy. And this was very much um, uh, a plan that would work perfectly if the if the Nazis got control of Britain. So there was. There was pretty much nothing he would stop at. He, he, I, I had an open mind about this when I started Lowney's book, but he came across as one of the most disgusting characters I have ever read about. Um, he was extremely vain. He was pretty stupid. Um, and he was obsessed with status. So poor old Churchill and co are trying to get him out of Europe. You know, this guy is dangerous. There's strong evidence that he should have been shot, court-martialed, hung as a traitor. So finally, they get him the supposed job in the Bahamas, where he's going to be governor of the Bahamas. And just before the whole thing is finally due to happen, he's been hanging around in Portugal with a known fascist banker, probably still passing secrets to the Germans in July 1940. And it's finally agreed that he's about to sail 
for the Bahamas when he insists that when he gets out there, um, they've got to be referred to as your royal highnesses and people must curtsy uh, to his wife. When he's told that they're not getting this, he drafts a telegram saying, right, I'm not going to the Bahamas. Uh, and he's narrowly talked out of this. But in the process of this endless nightmare, Churchill threatens him at least once with with a court martial. So this was the very, very top of British society. Um, an incredible dark secret, open secret that just is still not really talked about. And uh, to make it even more interesting, while he's delaying all this, Walter Schellenberg of the SSSD has gone down there to try and kidnap him. Uh, I mean, um, bring him back to Berlin. And they all he managed to do was he got there. They were delayed. And um, all Schellenberg managed to do was delay the luggage. He couldn't get hold, get to them in time. But they were, the Germans were very, very close to uh, abducting him. Yeah, this is it. I mean, this was another piece of the, the nightmare puzzle for Churchill and Cohen. And, and I think, you know, when you say abduct, I don't think... You know, he would have struggled very much by the look of it, um, given his relationship with the with the Nazis. Um, he was sending telegrams to Hitler, I think, around 1939, again saying, "Let's find a peaceful solution." Um, his main concern about the outbreak of war, as he prepared to dive back into a swimming pool in the south of France, was that um, it would open the way to world communism. You know, and he was going to ditch Russia as an ally as soon as he got back into rule in. Uh, in Britain, and it sounds fantastic now, but we've got to bear in mind that you know only the uh, wiliness of Churchill and all these aides around um, uh, the the Duke and uh, the Duchess perhaps saved us from this this appalling fate. And you know, I think there's one thing about um, Edward which really comes through over and over again that nobody wanted this man. Nobody wanted this couple, you know, they were being bounced around like a really foul poison chalice from Europe to the Bahamas to America. Um, everybody uh, was revolted by them. And this was summed up to me more than anything by the status of the wonderfully named good old British uh, civil servant, Fruity Metcalf, had at the start of the outbreak of war in um, France, he'd served the Duke and Duchess for 20 years. Um, he said goodnight normally uh, one evening in 1940 to um, Edward in the um, lavish house they had near the Bois de Boulogne in Paris, although uh, Simpson had gone off to the south of France already. And in the morning, uh, he made his normal telephone call to uh, Edward to, you know, hello, and time for breakfast and so forth. And he, he found that Edward had simply gone off at the crack of dawn, taken all the cars uh, and left this man um, without so much as a bicycle to to make his escape. Um, and I'm paraphrasing this from memory, but um, utterly I despise him. For 20 years I have served this man uh, and never knew who he was. And, you know, talks about how he kept secret, um, what a foul character this this really was. But it, it, it's really impossible to imagine you know, somebody so utterly unrepentant. I mean, he was a racist governor of the Bahamas. We haven't really got time to go into that. But after the war in the 1950s, Edward would go on to blame the Jews for starting the war. Uh, and in the 1960s, he would remark to one of his friends that he didn't think Hitler was such a bad chap. Wow. <laughs> just, just wow. 
actually speechless. I'm going to move on to the next question. Uh, just um, if you lost for words, like I said, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- thankfully, the my I was muted, so so you wouldn't have heard the dry retching when you said about the uh, about Ribbentrop sending the flowers to uh, that's, Wallace. That's, Simpson. that's allowed. That's allowed. If you think you're retching now, wait till you see the film film, film version one day. You know, with uh, <laughs> down really down dirty eighteen. I, I, I dive down a, a rabbit hole of Ribbentrop's autobiography in in my teens, and that was concerning enough. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about some of the something a bit more heroic. Some of the uh, wartime characters you talk about in your book are, are really quite interesting. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's great to be able to celebrate, you know, war heroes who really give the lie to all the fascism of the 30s and the 40s, and to Brexit that that there's this kind of ridiculous impoverished narrow British identity uh you know white people born in Britain whose parents were born in Britain um and who probably vote conservative despite the fact that it is manifestly not in their interest to do so unless they're millionaires or billionaires um yeah so in in the wartime period um there was one character I kept thinking back to um during the nightmare aftermath of Brexit and this was an extraordinary a uh, man called Patrick Lee Fermor. Um, he was um, a toddler, I think, in the First World War and very difficult school kid who ended up not knowing what to do with himself in 1933. He was enjoying life a bit with the bright young things in London, but he started getting jaded after his 99th party. And one rainy November day, he got into a real slump. He thought, what am I going to do? I've got to do something. He failed to go to university. He was thrown out of school. For being caught holding the hand of the greengrocer's daughter in the greengrocer's shop wasn't a dumb thing at Canterbury School. So there he is, not sure what path his future is going to take. He's a young, energetic, charming, athletic character. So he decides he's going to walk to Constantinople, and he does. And when you finish reading the history of disgust, you want to read something incredibly beautiful, dazzling, adventurous, charming, which is spoken like a voice in your ear as though he is still alive today. He died in, I think, 2011 in his 90s. Uh, then get hold of Fermor's travel memoirs, three books, um, beginning with The Time of Gifts, where he chronicles this year-long walk. And why I kept remembering Fermor was because, uh, apart from the fact that he was a, a big, extraordinary war hero on occupied Crete, um, there was nobody I could think of who was constantly as this very British kind of figure and British icon in lots of ways, but nobody more delighted, exhilarated, fascinated, surprised, uh, and yeah, just constantly blown away by everything foreign, strange, exotic. Nothing could be too foreign, strange, exotic. I mean, he had some really colourful brushes with all sorts of uh, nations, tribes, you might as well call them, um, gypsies in Europe and it was a constant source of wonder, fascination, delight, and beautiful passage where he bumps into some Orthodox Jews and he's so privileged and awed to be with these people in their strange costumes, listening to their amazing language, looking at their their Torah and listening to, to their rituals. Um, so Fermor was one person who gladdened me and I perhaps haven't got time to go into a huge amount of detail, but Fermor pulled off one of the strangest, most impossible <laughs> boys' own exploits of occupied Crete of the Second World War, when um, he and a character called Moss um, decided to dress up as Nazis, 
bang the um, chauffeur on the head and kidnap General Kriper um, on occupied Crete. Uh, they pulled off this impossible exploit, um, disguised as the general and his chauffeur in the car. They drove the general's car through, I think it was 22 German checkpoints in Heraklion, got out of the city with a very narrow brush where Bermont just shouted arrogantly, General's Wagen, and drove through the blockade pretty much at the last gate, um, and took um, Kriper across the mountains, across the whole of Crete, basically, north to south, with um, some very brave Cretan runners and, and guides. And Fermor's kind of uncanny ability to meet people who should have been very strange to him, or simply his absolutely sworn enemies, was summed up one morning when they're lying, waking up under the same blanket with the general in the middle and Fermor and Moss on either side. They're all smoking cigarettes, looking at the sun rising over uh, Mount Ida. And with this kind of birthplace of Zeus uh, in view, the general starts reciting an ode of Horace about this in Latin, and Fermor, with a sort of flawed classical education, um, carries on when the general breaks off and he recites the whole thing from memory, from heart, uh, by heart, to the end. And there's a moment here which it has been filmed the way back. Um, perhaps it should be done again now, it's a long time ago, but where the general and Fermor look at each other and everything goes uncannily still and the war seems to disappear. Um, and the general says, ah, so, Air Major. And Fermor says, and after that, things were always different between us. They finally got this guy off the island on a submarine um, about a month later with 50,000 German troops looking for them day and night. Um, and one of Fermor's great friends to whom he dedicates his travel narrative, A Time of Gifts, was a great colourful British character and lover of Greece like Fermor. Fermor made his home in one of the wildest parts of Greece, beautiful house, which you can actually see amazingly on Linklater's film Before Midnight. Um, there's a kind of Fermor cameo and the house plays a big role in that film. So great lover of Greece, great lover of Europe, lover of everything strange and exotic and foreign. And Zan Fielding was a friend of his who was initially uh, billed to play the part of the chauffeur um, which was played by by Moss in the um, kidnap. Um, but Zanfielding was considered to be not very Aryan looking. He was a bit too short and he was dark haired. So Moss got the role um, being blonde and rather tall. But the reason I mentioned Zanfielding is this, because one other great character I've recently been researching and discovering and celebrating, and we talked about briefly, I think, uh, on a different episode, was uh, Christina Skarbek, a uh, Polish Jewess who became naturalized um, in Britain eventually as Christine Granville. And I can't really begin to do justice to her. It's absolutely amazing character. She now has four biographies, and I'm sure one day there'll be a film about her if they can find someone amazing enough to play this woman who was an amazing British spy uh, in Europe. Now, if we cut to one more part of this puzzle, and it will all come together, I promise. Um, my father was forced out of the East End uh, of London with his family by the Blitz. Uh, my grandfather simply walked out of London one night, 30 miles, got to St Albans, walked back again the next day, said, right, folks, we're moving. This is getting too hot. We're going to die. 
So the move to St Albans, uh, and I had the great luck to grow up in this beautiful city and to be friends with someone my father knew from the Abbey Choir. Uh, this was Elizabeth uh, Hudson, she was then, but she was born Elizabeth Camere in, oh, I'm stretching my memory here now, 1916, I think. Um, and she came of a very distinguished European family. Her mother was a Shakespearean actress. Her father, um, Emil Camere, was a distinguished Belgian poet. And she adopted Britain as her home and had um, two brothers um, who I, I talked to Elizabeth for long, long periods of time. She was a wonderful conversationalist, wonderful listener. She died um, in 2008 at 92. And up to that time, I would have these amazing conversations, which are very special for lots of reasons, because she was an extraordinary person, extraordinary socialist, uh, never gave up hope in Britain in all the darkest days in her late years. Uh, was stone deaf, so you had to sit there and speak right at her. You never took your eyes off her face for perhaps five hours sometimes because she had to live read. Anyway, the point is that she almost never mentioned her brother Francis, and she almost, in fact, she never ever mentioned her brother Peter. Uh, Peter uh, was killed in the RAF in, I think, 1941, and Francis had been a conscientious objector working on a farm up until this point when his brother was killed. He joined the war as a spy in occupied France. Uh, he was a very successful spy. He was very clever. He was very brave. Um, and he sent a huge number of coded messages, had a distinguished spying career, despite being six foot four in his socks. So that this giant Englishman was very likely to be uh, spotted as he stalked across the, the French countryside. And he was um, partnering uh, crime with Christine Granville. Um, who was, if anything, even more amazing than Francis was. Extraordinary character. I highly recommend any of the biographies about her. Um, but at one point, uh, finally, it looked like the game was up for Francis. And a couple of his allies were stopped by the Nazis, got banged to rights with a lot of counterfeit money. And they were thrown into prison, treated pretty badly in Digne prison in France. Um, and as Francis lay there, uh, not getting very well fed, wondering if the next day was going to see him led out to the football pitch to be shot. Um, he heard suddenly somebody humming his favourite song under the walls of the prison. Um, the song was Frankie and Johnny, and the person humming he knew immediately had to be Christine Grandel. So he bellowed out at the top of his lungs this song in response. A couple of days later, um, he's taken out of the prison after being given a surprisingly tasty and proper meal and thinks, is this the last lunch of the condemned men? So he's taken out um, and imagines any moment he's going to be shot. They presently meet Christine Granville. Everything is still very quiet and nervy and hush. They're with the uh, SS commander Vane. And only when they take Vane to a stream, take off his uniform and bury it, does he realise and find that Christine Granville... <laughs> has recently spent three hours lying to, charming and bribing Vane uh, in his office, having pulled off quite a feat to even get the audience. Um, and so it was that Francis, the brother of my friend Elizabeth, lived to die in his bed in his 90s after a very distinguished career as a headmaster. He's very well loved. You can read his obituary uh, in The Guardian and elsewhere. And um, it was only recently that I found out that the other person in the prison with him, who also very probably would have been shot, was actually Zan Fielding. 
So very strange alliance of highly distinguished, courageous, amazing, colorful people who were truly European and really, really brave. And if you want a real, a real spirit of the Blitz, I think that was it. Yeah, absolutely. And there is that common, uh, there are historians on uh, Twitter who study sort of niche, I mean, um, like Alina or Jenny Grant, who do like the Poland in World War II. And there, there is that constant thing of, you know, Britain fought alone. Eh, no, we didn't. <laughs> we've got Polish agents, we've got Norwegians, we've got the the allies were a massive mix of different occupied people. And it's one of those things that gets overlooked. Um, in fact, there's that there was that meme that went round a while back about um, Britain standing alone. It had a and it was a had pictures of Spitfires in the air, and they've all got the uh, Polish squadron markings on them. Which is yeah, I mean, you know, of course they're just a few of so many people, and it's absolutely nuts, isn't it, that you've got this really confused, impoverished, ridiculous, completely false right wing identity thing. And of course, it, it burst out during the pandemic. You know, we we don't need these lockdowns. We've got the spirit of the Blitz. I mean, how does that actually translate? Because my father lived through a lot of the Blitz and he went down the bomb shelters with his ukulele, played it to get people singing. He was 14 years old. <laughs> now, if you're suffering a, a bombardment from the Germans, going down in the tube and singing is probably quite a good thing to do. But if you're suffering a deadly violence that doesn't discriminate uh, racially or politically, uh, you get in a crowd of people and start singing, it's probably not a very good thing to do. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, this this mad kind of right wing idea of Churchill and Britain and the war that gives people this completely fake identity. You know, it was the absolute antithesis of Brexit. You know, it was a mm. massive piece of, of European cooperation uh, against, you know, three, three fascist powers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is probably a, a good place to, to draw it to an end. But so... Um... Thanks for coming on and talking to us. Could you just remind everyone the title of the book and uh, when they're due? I think they're out now, aren't they? Yeah, many thanks. And thanks for, you know, great full discussion. So the the, the, the non-fiction, which is a big, big book, it's been seven years in the writing, um, is Talking Dirty, A History of Disgust from Jesus Christ to Boris Johnson. And it's a kind of dark alternative history of everything that makes us human, I think, because it's that stuff we dare talk about, that we push away from ourselves. It's a big history of politics of class, the invention of the great unwashed, uh, and so forth. But if you want something completely different and a very much lighter read, Talking Dead is out on Kindle now. I'm having a bit of a fiddle and a nightmare with the footnotes for the paperback, but it is coming very soon. Uh, and Carly the Wonder Dog is the celebration of kind of diverse British identity. And it's one of the shocking things like Cable Street, there is a version of Cable Street in that book. Uh, and the motto of the, dog, of the book, I think, really, if anything, is only dogs can save us now. Dogs come to the rescue. And that is uh, a tremendously fun novel, which I think, yeah, goes from age 12 to 112. And that's out with uh, a lovely cover uh, painted by a friend of mine, Emily, in paperback and uh, Kindle, if you want a, a very fun uh, romp through British history, as it's not normally told. Yeah, awesome. And uh, th thanks again for coming on and talking to us tonight or today. That's when we did it. <laughs> Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 
10% of every sale via our bookshop, supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.